Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. Well, this week has been a very long year. Um, how are you holding up there, Jordan? I'm ready for the weekend. How about you? <laughs> right. So lots of things happened at the court um, and across the street from the court in the Senate where confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson were held. We're going to talk about that, some other issues surrounding Justice Thomas, and then we promise we'll give you a sneak peek. So let's kick it off with the confirmation hearings. Jordan, um, I feel like... There was something about sentencing that happened. Yeah, so the hearings really were almost all about sentencing, particularly in the child pornography cases. So wound up talking about that probably a lot more than anyone ever thought we would in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing. But that was really at least one of the dominant themes from the Republicans. They homed in on a handful of cases that Judge Jackson presided over when she was a district court judge where she sentenced defendants who'd possessed child pornography to below the sentencing guidelines. And so it's an issue that really requires context that obviously was not laid out by the questioners. So the Sentencing Commission guidelines are promulgated by this body called the Sentencing Commission, which Jackson used to serve on. Justice Breyer was one of the original commissioners, too, so she would be the second ex-commissioner on the court. But these are guidelines that are supposed to ensure uniformity and transparency in the system. And so it's this formula that judges look to in calculating what prison terms should be. They used to be mandatory. Now they're advisory, partly because of an opinion written by Justice Breyer. The Sentencing Commission and the guidelines are kind of his baby. And so it's been pretty much roundly said by judges all across the political spectrum that in these particular types of cases, the sentencing guidelines are out of whack when it comes to these child porn possession cases. And so Judge Jackson, like other judges across the country, were routinely sentencing defendants to below the guidelines. Without any of that context, it can seem like she was doing something that was outlandish, outside of the norm. For example, they focused on this one case where the guidelines were much higher and she sentenced defendants, a defendant to three months in prison. And that was lower than the guidelines and lower than what prosecutors recommended. That was another point that the senators were making, that she was sentencing lower, lower than prosecutors recommended. Of course, it was also higher than what the defendants had asked for. I mean, if it was just going to be whatever prosecutors recommended in a case, then there wouldn't be a need for a judge to be there. But in any event, that wound up being the theme that she's then somehow a coddler of sex predators and tying into that broader theme was really the argument that they were making. Um, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but um, I was... It stuck with me a question that Senator Blackburn asked in her kind of introductory speech on the first day. She said when she gets an opportunity to question Judge Jackson, she's going to try to discover whether her secret intent is to let child rapists out on the street. And I don't I guess I don't know what to say to that. Um, So many different threads to pull on there. But yeah, that was really I mean, when you when you step away from all the technicalities of federal sentencing laws and and how tough that can be. um, And I think that's part of the reason why her answers weren't really that 
you know, persuasive, or I don't think she's going to win over any re- Republicans, is that it is so technical. At base, the allegation is that she wants there to be sexual child predators out there. And there's no lobby for child sex predators. So it's not a political argument that's easy to dispel in two seconds. And so that's why it's you know, savvy in a way, depending on the point that you're trying to get across. Obviously, the Republicans aren't trying to win over any Democrats. And so that wasn't going to happen. And that didn't happen. The Democrats had the votes from the beginning. But again, it's a political messaging, which is as old as time, this notion of trying to protect kids, no matter what you're actually doing. Well, and I think also important to note for our listeners is that three members, three Republican members of the Judiciary Committee seem like they're um, going to be mounting presidential runs for 2024, uh, Cruz, Hawley, and Cotton. And those were the three um, among the most toughest questioners of Judge Jackson. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. But, you know, we talked about convincing Republicans, convincing Democrats. We have this morning, we're recording at 11 o'clock on Friday, March 25th. And so far, we've got some news about senators and how they're going to vote. No surprise, I think, Mitch McConnell said that he is not going to support her confirmation. And sort of a little surprising, not really, is that Joe Manchin said that he would. Right. Manchin was like one of those things that you didn't doubt, but just the fact that he's definitely a yes now is something that's just showing that it is going where we thought it was going to go. Um, anything else about the hearings that you think uh, we should talk about? You know, I think, you know, we're, we've focused a lot on kind of the heated debate, but there were a lot of lighter moments, a lot of, um, you know, on the other side as well. I think for me, one thing that really stuck out to me was in Jackson's opening statement where she talked about trying to balance being a working mother. Um, and she said she didn't feel like she always got it right. Girls, I know it has not been easy as I've tried to navigate the challenges of juggling my career and motherhood. And I fully admit that I did not always get the balance right. But I hope that you've seen that with hard work, determination, and love, it can be done. And to me, that was, it was kind of validating to hear like this woman who, you know, I don't think even Republicans are saying she doesn't have like this amazing background. Um, you know, she's kind of do it all kind of woman has doubts. It's, it was humanizing. And I think that stood out to me, not just because, you know, I relate to it, but it feels like so much of her story, people could pick at it and and kind of relate to it. Um, and we saw those moments happening, particularly with Senator Booker from New Jersey, where uh, was an emotional exchange. And I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom. Again, the Republicans definitely attacked her, but it was kind of a weird vibe in that they would start out acknowledging the historic aspect of the process and we think you're a great person. And by the way, we also think that you're this secret sex predator coddler. But I'm really happy on this historic day of the nomination and you're a role model for all our kids who you're not protecting because you're a coddler of sex predators. 
Yeah, it was. There was a, a real sense of whiplash a lot of times. And so I think, like, right when Cory Booker was up and then, you know, he's crying and Judge Jackson's crying. And then and then it's like, oh, the 20 minutes is up and let's go to our Republican senator. And it was like, well, you know, I'm so happy to follow Senator Booker because now I want to talk about trademark law, <laughs> intellectual property. And it was like, Zhoot. all right. So we'll be seeing, I guess, on timing, um, Durbin announced that they're going to, you know, bring up her confirmation next Monday, which means, you know, wonky Senate rules that the committee probably won't vote on getting her out of committee until the next Monday. And that sets up uh, confirmation by mid-April, by the full floor. Democrats have said they want to get this done before they go out on their Easter break. So things will be moving quickly. So, you know, one thing I really appreciated from the Supreme Court was that while we were in the thick of covering the confirmation hearings, they went ahead and handed down some uh, shadow docket orders in cases that had been pending for a while. Yeah, this is a new a new shadowy innovation. Usually it's under the cover of night, but this time it was under the cover of a confirmation hearing. I, it will always stick out to me during Gorsuch's confirmation that, like, in the middle of him being questioned, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling that reversed him. And I think it was like unanimous or something like that. And I was like, mm. welcome to the big leagues, kid. Great timing. Welcome. Welcome, colleague. So, Kimberly, you want to shed some light on this latest shadowy endeavor by the court? I will try to, although I'll admit that I don't have complete clarity on this myself. Uh, so this in- involves two Uh, redistricting challenges out of Wisconsin, one to the state district maps, um, the other to the federal congressional map. In the case dealing with the state voting maps, the Supreme Court uh, agreed with the Republican challengers um, and said that the state Supreme Court had erred when it had chosen a map that provided more majority black districts. And the reasoning seems to be that they court or the mapmaker hadn't given enough reason for why they were providing an extra majority black district. And so the Supreme Court, you know, sent that back. A little troubling because in the case of the federal maps, uh, the Supreme Court rejected the challenge. And with no, you know, writing, no ruling, just the standard line, you know, this petition is denied. Um, So, you know, we're kind of left to guess what distinguishes it. Um, these two things, in, in both cases, the state Supreme Court had chosen the map after the Democratic governor and the Republican-led legislature could not come up with one on their own. Um, I think, I guess, you know, if we're trying to guess what the difference is, I think that is because the federal map um, didn't include a discussion of race. Instead, it was more about proportionality. But, you know, again, we're, we're just guessing. Those are the Wisconsin cases. We also got on Thursday, we got some opinions um, and one in Ramirez versus Collier, which is one of these, speaking of the shadow docket, one of these cases and a handful of cases that the Supreme Court has taken out of the shadow docket or off of the shadow docket and, you know, set for oral argument. So we have a resolution in that case. And what happened, Jordan? Sure. So this is Ramirez against Collier. This is the case of John Ramirez, Texas death row inmate. He wasn't challenging his conviction or his death sentence. He just wanted his pastor to be able to lay hands on him and pray aloud during the execution. So 
Texas officials, though, still opposed this and fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. And this was still at an earlier phase in the litigation, but the court, as you said, wound up taking the case off of the shadow docket and holding oral argument and eventually writing an opinion that we just got this week. And so the court sided with Ramirez over the state, saying Ramirez was likely to succeed on his claim because Texas's restrictions on religious touch and audible prayer in the execution chamber burden religious exercise and are not the least restrictive means of furthering the state's compelling interests. The state had argued that security reasons barred them from granting Ramirez his preferred way to have the execution proceed. But again, this is at an earlier stage in litigation, at least in theory. Texas could still fight it, but it looks like they may have to change the way that they conduct executions, at least in this case. And one thing about this decision, when the case was granted, I thought that the court would wind up being pretty unanimous in siding with Ramirez, even if, if even if for different reasons, because it was never going to stop an execution going forward. And even if you're a justice who wants executions to proceed as quickly as possible, clarifying the rules for how they proceed could wind up having the effect of speeding up these executions. But then during the argument, it was actually pretty contentious, and I wasn't sure exactly how the court was going to split, but this was an 8-1 decision in favor of Ramirez, and Justice Thomas was the lone dissenter. And he laid out what we've seen a lot from at least some of the Republican appointees in these cases, criticizing what he cast as Ramirez's gamesmanship in this litigation. And I thought that was actually really notable that it was an opinion not joined by Alito or Gorsuch. Alito really in particular has been one of the lead, if not the leading justices in really launching this campaign against death penalty lawyers for raising these claims. He's called it guerrilla warfare. And so that was really telling to me that Thomas was so far out on his own, as he has been in a lot of other cases, as we've talked about. But really to be totally alone on this issue, I thought was notable to me anyway. Although not totally unsurprising, um, the votes of Alito and Gorsuch, because, you know, there's this other competing interest, um, you know, of religious freedom. And, you know, they have very robustly voted to protect that. And we have that speech from Justice Alito, where he was saying that religious freedom is under attack and, you know, really saying it needs strong protections. For sure. I think that ties into the different justices arriving at the same conclusion, maybe for different reasons. Because if you're Alito or Gorsuch, you get to protect the religious interest without losing out on an execution, not going forward. And so there's a little something for everybody in this case. So Jordan, you mentioned that Thomas was on his own in that eight to one ruling. You know, another opinion where Thomas was on his own in an eight to one Um, ruling. I think I know where you're going with this. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember this? Way back, the Supreme Court was asked to weigh in on uh, whether or not documents were going to be handed over to the January 6th committee. And Thomas was the lone justice to think that the court should take up that case. Last night, we got some interesting news about that, um, was that part of the documents that were subpoenaed and obtained by the committee included text messages between Ginny Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife, and former chief of staff Mark Meadows, um, in which Ginny Thomas is urging Meadows to challenge the election, 
says it's one of the greatest heists in American history. Um, and we didn't really hear about any of that from Justice Thomas. Um, so I'm interested to hear. I have some thoughts about that, but interested to hear what, you know, what kind of is top of mind about that for you. What do you mean? She's her own person? Just because they're married together, are best friends, talk about everything. She has a lot of influence over him. I see where you're going with this now. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Okay. I see where I see where this is going. Yeah. So it raises some questions, right? <laughs> it, raises, it, it does um, raise some questions. Yes. Yeah. So a lot to say about it. For one, it raises this topic about how the justices do their own thing randomly or not when it comes to recusing from cases and... There's no one to enforce any code. If they were to have one, there's no intergalactic body that can supervise them, which they're still bound, at least in theory, by this federal law, which says that judges have to recuse when there's any potential uh, question of impropriety being raised. Uh, That's an open question, um, because, yes, the statute does specifically mention justices, but Chief Justice Roberts have has suggested in his ear and reports that um, even though it says that they're still not bound because they're a separate entity. But, you know, they say that they follow it. Um, and, you know, my question is, is that the touchstone in these judicial recusal cases is always the appearance of bias. And so we even have a Supreme Court case talking about how it's different for politicians and judges. You know, for politicians, what you really, what is important is actual bias. You know, for judges, it's not actual bias. It's the appearance of bias. And so, you know, it's it seems to be an even lower bar for judges and justices to have to recuse. And you know, I know that one of the retorts from the justices have been like, look, that might be a great rule for lower court judges. You know, we there are always someone to replace them. We're the Supreme Court. No one can replace us. And we risk, you know, not being able to decide issues if we recuse a lot. But in this case, we have the benefit of hindsight. Right. And it wasn't necessary for him to vote um, in this case. And I just wonder and I don't know if we'll ever get an answer to this. Did Thomas discuss this issue with the justices and they all got together and were like, that's no problem? Or did he not know about it? And what kind of questions does that bring up about a spouse's responsibility to say? I mean, if this were something more straightforward, like a stock, you know, she owned a stock, wouldn't we expect her to tell her husband about that so he can be aware and at least talk to his colleagues? The thing you mentioned was interesting to me about how his vote wasn't necessary here, right? It's there's no kind of like secret heist being pulled off by him. All it is is just saying he disagreed with what the court was doing and sticking his own neck out on this issue that's now generating controversy. So it's uh, not exactly the perfect crime. Okay, well, we can't talk about Justice Thomas without mentioning that on Friday night, Justice Thomas was admitted to the hospital. The Supreme Court actually didn't tell us about this until Sunday night, right before the confirmation hearings were about to happen. Um, They said that they expected him to be released within a couple of days. Those couple of days came and went. We didn't hear anything from the Supreme Court um, until I was doing a live interview and had just finished saying that they hadn't told us anything. And then they told us something. Um, And that's that Justice Thomas was released from the hospital today. So he has been sitting out the arguments this week. 
no word on whether or not he will be in the courtroom next week. If he is, though, Jordan, should we tell people what he would hear? Let's do it. So the first case that the justices are going to hear on Monday is Ladur versus Union Pacific Railroad Company. And um, I guess I'll describe the case like this. It involves the Locomotive Inspection Act. We're listening. (laughs) Yeah, so this is a pretty technical question um, about, you know, when a locomotive is in use. Um, Don't expect it to have a lot of groundbreaking effects on other areas of the law, so... So that's really my extent of Ladur, so let's not press on it too hard. Uh, the next case is part of a trio of arbitration cases that the justices are hearing during March. Yep, this will be a couple of arbitration cases I'm talking about today. Southwest Airlines against Saxon. So the question here is this. Whether workers who load or unload goods from vehicles that travel in interstate commerce but do not physically transport such goods themselves are interstate transportation workers exempt from the Federal Arbitration Act. So this act, which we see litigated a lot at the court, it favors arbitration over litigation, but there is an exception for some workers, including ones engaged in foreign or interstate commerce, and that's what we're dealing with here. The question is if we are dealing with them here. The airline is backed by corporate groups like the Chamber of Commerce, Amazon, Lyft, and Uber, and the AFL-CIO and other groups are backing the workers. So you see what kind of case this is, and that's going to be a theme we see in the other arbitration case I'll talk about in a minute, but for listeners who like arbitration, you can take a break while Kimberly talks about this next case on Tuesday. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Tuesday, the justices will hear Torres versus the Texas Department of Safety. Uh, this one should sound familiar to listeners because it was part of our deep dive episode uh, from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the question here is whether or not Congress can authorize suits against states like Texas, um, even though Texas doesn't want to be sued, uh, given that you know, the federal government has pretty broad powers. So that's Torres. Make sure to take a listen to our deep dive there. Okay, arbitration listeners, come back. All right, we're back. Don't worry, people. Viking River Cruises ending out the week. Don't worry, we're back with arbitration Wednesday, March 30th. So again, we're talking about the Federal Arbitration Act, or as I like to call it on the podcast now, the Act. This time the question is, how that law interacts with California's Private Attorneys General Act. And this is a unique law in California that lets people bring suits on behalf of the state and other employees. So what happened here was Viking River Cruises sales rep, Angie Moriana, sued for labor violations under the California law. The company sought to compel arbitration, and the issue is essentially which law wins out, the state or the federal. And as I mentioned before, we have these same types of groups lining up behind the parties as we do in the airline case, more of the corporate groups versus more of the worker groups. So again, we have the justices sorting out these arbitration types of claims and whether they're going to side with the arbitration side and the companies or the litigation side and the workers. All right. Well, that sneak peek episode is pretty long. I I wonder, we can't really call it a sneak peek, but um, that's what we're calling it. We're sticking to it. And you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news and news surrounding confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for sticking with us. 
You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.